section in the book of Psalms starts at 153, the verse 153 in Psalm 119. It's a section on the Hebrew letter Resh, and it begins like this. Consider my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me, revive me according to your word. It's an impressive beginning to this section where the psalmist says, Consider my affliction and deliver me. It reminds us that the psalmist's life was not lived in an ivory tower. You know, we might think that as much as the psalmist loved God's word and had given himself to the study and the meditation of God's word, you'd think that he'd just be pleased just to do that all day long, right? And never anything else. But no, no, no. He lived a life that was full of, as he says right there, affliction. He he didn't live in some secluded place where all he did was study the Bible all day long. No, he lived a real life interacting with people, some of whom were his enemies or at least his opponents, and he lived a life that experienced affliction. And he says, so Lord, in the midst of my affliction, understand that I do not forget your law. You know, in the lives of some people, affliction drives them away from God and from his word. But for the psalmist, those troubled times drove him closer to God, closer to his word. Then he continued on in verse 154, saying, plead my cause and redeem me. You see, I love this, how the psalmist looked for help and rescue outside of himself. This isn't a man looking to pull himself up by his own bootstraps, is it? No, he's depending upon God. Lord, I look to you to plead my cause. I look to you to redeem me. And this reminds us that all of the previous claims to being righteous and right with God in the previous aspects of Psalm 119, those aren't claims of sinless perfection. No, no, no. He was comparing himself to the ungodly men who opposed him. No, no, no. But between him and God, he knew that he needed God to plead his cause. He knew that he needed God to redeem him. And so using this, well, it's actually language of the courtroom. Plead my cause. It's a Hebrew phrasing that suggests a courtroom. And redeem me. All of this is suggesting a legal setting. But then he says something really wonderful in verse 154 where he says, Revive me according to your word. That's a familiar thought here in Psalm 119. He said it in verse 25. He said it in verse 107. He wanted to be made alive and to have that life brought to him according to God's word. You know what this tells us? This tells us that God's word is a source of revival. If we will read the word of God and do what it tells us to do in prayer, in repentance, in dedication, and in pursuing God with the whole heart, if we'll do that, then it's a source of personal revival. And when a whole church does it, it's a source of corporate revival. And by the way, this tells us something else. It tells us that revival itself is according to God's word. The concept of revival, both personal and corporate or a group idea, is biblical. A genuine revival will honor and will promote the word of God. 
By the way, when we think of that phrase, revive me according to your word, it also suggests to us that there may be a false kind of revival, a a, a pseudo-revival, which is not according to the word of God. And it's fair to, to assess any purported words of revival according to this measure. Is it according to the word of God? Well, that was the psalmist's heart. But, but he looks at the wicked now in verse 155. And he says, salvation is far from the wicked. For they do not seek your statutes. Greater your tender mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your judgments. The psalmist understood that the wicked would not be saved. Salvation is far from the wicked. Even as Paul later on stated in Galatians chapter 5, that the unrighteous would not inherit the kingdom of God. Yet it's very interesting. Though he understood that the wicked would not be saved, which, by the way, I mean, it's such a fundamental idea biblically, but it's so foreign to our modern age, isn't it? If you ask thinking people, does everybody go to heaven? No, not everybody goes to heaven. There's some especially bad people who don't go there, right? Um, Hitler, Hitler, he doesn't go to heaven. Well, who else? Will you go to heaven? Most people think absolutely yes, and they do. Because they have a misconception of what it takes for God to receive you into heaven. That this salvation has to come to a person from God himself. As he says here, salvation is far from the wicked. But why? For they do not seek your statutes. You see, the psalmist understood that their wickedness was rooted in their refusal to seek God through his word. I could just imagine, maybe you're here, say, well, I don't like that. I don't think I'm saved according to how you would say. So I'm one of the wicked who's going to go. And I said, well, you can change that very easily. Why don't you seek the Lord in his word? Those are the wicked who don't inherit salvation. But God invites you right now. Why don't you seek him in his word? And you can be one of those who does inherit. They are wicked. They do not inherit salvation. It's far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. And friends, those who do not seek shall not find. And there they never do. But in contrast to this, notice what he says in verse 156. He says, Great are your tender mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your judgments. You see, though the wicked were far from salvation and far from God's word, the tender mercies are near, uh, the tender mercies of God are near to all who seek them. You know, in a paradoxical way, Though the salvation of God was far from them, that is the wicked, God was not far from them because of his tender mercies. Friends, and I would say this to even somebody who's rejecting God tonight, God is not far from you. God is as close as the trust of your heart, of the repentance of your soul. Bring it to him and you'll see how near God is. You thought you might have to, so to speak, climb a mountain to find God, to climb a ladder, to achieve something, to to do some great work on your own. No, God is very near. He's as near as the faith that you'll put in him and his word and his work, especially in what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. You'll see that God is near to you. 
But then he says this in a very beautiful way. Great are your tender mercies, O Lord. And it is a great mercy, isn't it? It has to be a great mercy. It has to be a great mercy to cover over all my sin. It has to be a great mercy to last all of eternity. It has to be a great mercy to put even a heavenly crown upon our head, does it not? And then at the end of all of that, in verse 156, he says, Revive me according to your judgments. That's the same thought repeated from verse 154. The psalmist is emphasizing the idea that God's word is both a source of revival and a measure of revival. But he continues on now, verse 157. Many are my persecutors and my enemies, yet I do not turn from your testimonies. I see the treacherous and I am disgusted because they do not keep your word. Now again, we're reminded of what we saw at the very first verse in this section, verse 153, that the psalmist lived life in a real world, not sheltered in some constant Bible study rich environment. And his trust in the word of God was forged in the real world, in a world full of persecutors and enemies. But despite their presence, he said, I do not turn from your testimonies. The presence of so many persecutors, the presence of so many enemies, it didn't make the psalmist despair or doubt the love of God for him. He didn't have the expectation that a godly life was a problem-free life. No, instead, he was determined to keep tuned in to God and focused on the word of God. And so he says, I see the treacherous, verse 158, and I'm disgusted. They don't keep your word. Now, it wasn't that the psalmist made the mistake that we often make. It wasn't that the psalmist expected godly conduct from the ungodly. Don't we sometimes do that? We're we're blown away that the ungodly are ungodly. No, no, it wasn't that. Paul warned us about not expecting that. But he felt disgusted because God and his word were being disgraced, even if it came from disgraceful people. Spurgeon had some lines upon that idea. He said this, I was sorry to see such sinners. I was sick of them, disgusted with them. I could not endure them. I found no pleasure in them. They were a sad sight to me, however fine their clothing or witty their chatter was. Even when they were most mirthful, a sight of them made my heart heavy. I could not tolerate either them or their doings. Friends, this is holy ground that the psalmist is walking on. He has such a great sensitivity towards sin and a passion for the glory of God. And that's entirely characteristic of the revival that the psalmist prayed for repeatedly in this section. Do you notice that he repeatedly prays for revival in this section, right? Yet he couples that with an extreme sensitivity towards sin. Now, would you take that bargain from God? Oh God, send revival! And God says to you, if I send revival to you, you will be so sensitive to sin that it will grieve you and pain you, the sin of your own life, and you'll be broken and almost despairing at the sin that you see around you in your daily life. Do you want that? Many of us would say, well, no, Lord. I just want the great spiritual heebie-jeebies that you send with revival. 
Can't you send me the really fun stuff about revival, you know? But isn't it true? Listen, you want revival from God? Then how about God making you very, very sensitive to sin? Oh, no, no, no. And I'm not only talking or even primarily talking about being sensitive to sin in the lives of others. You can tell when true revival has begun when you're very broken up about the sin in your own life, right? But that's what it does. That's the work of revival. And so he continues on, verse 159. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The entirety of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. I find it interesting that in verse 159, the psalmist asked God to look at his love for his word. But then he asked for revival on the basis of loving kindness. In other words, he didn't say this. Oh, Lord, look at how much I love your word. Now don't I deserve revival? No, no, no. He said, Lord, I do love your word. Look at how much I love your word. But if you're going to send revival to me, Don't do it on the basis of what I deserve. Send me revival because of your loving kindness. And again, he says it again. He says, God, I need it again. I need this work from you. And so he says, verse 159, revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The emphasis points to the idea that revival is never deserved or earned, but given from the loving kindness of God. And then he says beautifully in verse 160, the entirety of your word is truth and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. The psalmist again declares the infallible character of the word of God. The entire word is true, not merely portions of it or just concepts from the word. And not only is it true, it is eternally true. All of your word. How much of the word of God is true? All of it. And that's how we receive it. Friends, I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, the scriptures are as true in Genesis as they are in Revelation. And the five books as Moses are as inspired as the four gospels. There is not one single mistake, either in the word of God or in the providential dealings of God. Neither in the book of Revelation nor of providence will there be any need to put a single note of an error. The Lord has nothing to regret and nothing to retract, nothing to amend or reverse. As it says there, every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Friends, do you believe that? If you have that kind of trust in God's word, then I invite you to make the prayer of verse 159. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. Do you want God to do that work of revival in you? Then please remember, ask him for it, wait on him for it, trust him for it, but remember what it means. It means being made very sensitive to sin, including your own. No, not including your own, especially your own. 
when you're ready for that kind of work, then I would say that at least a bit of revival has already begun. Lord, revive us. Revive me, Lord. And Father, I say that being just a little bit scared. Lord, sometimes I wonder just how sensitive to sin I want to be. But Lord, I trust you, I believe in you, that that even a work of deep cleansing that you would do in my life or in the life of anybody here, you would do it with such compassion and such grace that we could do nothing else but joyfully receive. Lord, set us free right now. Set us free to receive from you. Revive us, Lord, according to your word. Revive us, Lord, according to your loving kindness. And do it in the fullness of love. In Jesus' name.